Well, good morning. Really? That's it? Good morning. You guys here? They had coffee this morning, right? You had some, I hope? Something like, you know? No? All right. Well, I hope you're awake and attentive. We got some work to do in the book of Romans today. So I want to again invite you to turn to Romans Now, chapter 8, where we are going to look at the solution of a problem that Paul in so many ways expounded on yesterday, right? As we left chapter 7, we left a man in Paul in his testimony talking about the idea that, listen, I understand that I'm saved. I understand what has happened, what's been credited to my account. I understand what's been taken out of my account, that idea of sin. And in chapter 6, Paul says, I have this desire within me to serve God. I want to do this. I have this new um, unction in my life to serve him. But in chapter 7, he says three different times, I want, but I can't. I find myself desiring to do these things, but there's something in my life that seems to be so overpowering, so all-consuming, this law of sin, the flesh as he calls it, this little chihuahua that's constantly barking in his sin, in in his life, that he can't do the things that he desires to do. And he ends, as we saw yesterday, In chapter 7, verse 24, really in a sense, I think just exclaiming, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? Like that's the idea. Paul is begging for help. He says, listen, I don't need more rules. I don't need boxes to check. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. What I need is help. Imagine if you were to come across someone that was in a lake drowning. What they don't need from you at that moment to say, hey, If you'll just move your arms like this, right? If you'll just swim. Let me give you a couple lessons on how to swim. No, no, no. That is not what a drowning person needs. What do they need in that moment? They need help. They need a rope. They need something from outside to come in and offer them what they do not have. Well, friends, in chapter 8, this is the cry for help, and God through Christ answers this. But before we get into the details of how that happens, I want you to notice where Paul begins in chapter 8, verse 1. And friends, if you miss everything else today, like if you nap through the rest of chapel, which, you know, sometimes you need to, I understand. If you miss everything else, do not miss verse 1. It is so important after what Paul just said. Listen, I'm struggling, and I'm not the only one out there. As a believer, wrestling with sin in my flesh, and I would imagine, I would guess, that there are times that Paul would say, there are temptations for me to feel shame and to feel guilt and to wonder in that moment, God, do you still love me? Are we okay even though I'm I'm working this thing out called salvation in my life with fear and trembling, as he says in other books? He says very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? You stand before a God, and you are not condemned As Paul says, I continue to battle this thing called the flesh in my life, my body. You are not condemned. In the courtroom of God's justice, he says, I have set you free. I don't look down my nose at you like some ogre in the sky. Some of us have the tendency to view God where he's just sitting up there going, Mike, I'm so disappointed in you. I can't believe you're doing that again. What does this verse say? There is therefore how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because again, as we mentioned before, in Christ, we are fully forgiven. We are fully accepted. We are fully 
known and we are fully loved. Now, friends, you may not need that today, that promise, that reality, that verse that you need to cling to, but I promise you, you need to take that verse and you need to hide it away in your heart because there is gonna be a time and a season in your life where you're wrestling through this concept of the flesh and you're gonna need to remind yourselves the truth of what scripture says about you and how God views you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse two, Paul explains why. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death on our own. The law had us. We could not escape. But when we are in Christ, baptized, as Paul said yesterday, identified with both his death and his resurrection, we are set free. And I want you to notice what the gospel is called here by Paul, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. This is the opposite of the law of God in the Old Testament, which simply exposed our sin and it brought forth death. But we are now under a new law, which brings forth life. And every word that Paul mentions in this verse is a beautiful sermon. It's called the law because it's a divine ordinance. There is no plan B. The Spirit, because salvation is brought forth by the Holy Spirit, not by our best efforts. It's a work of God that called you, converted you, placed you in Christ. It invigorates you. It rebirths you. It seals you. It secures you. And it raises you from the dead. Jesus did everything for us. And ultimately, it brings forth life because that's exactly what this law gives you instead of death that you and I deserve. I want you to think about it like the law of gravity that's always in effect on this earth, right? As high as I want to jump, there's another law that's contradicting that. The law of gravity says that I will always return back to earth. But if I get in an airplane, there's actually another law at work, the law of aerodynamics, and that law of gravity, it's not as if it ceases to exist anymore, but the law of aerodynamics overpowers it. I don't fall out of the sky. Do you know why? Because the law of aerodynamics is stronger than the law of gravity. And it's the same here. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Weak as it was through the flesh. We've already seen that the law is good, it's divine, it's a wonderful thing, but the problem is it simply cannot remove that weight off of our chest. It has the ability to show us that weight, but it simply cannot do what it was never intended to do. God had to do that on our behalf. But you'll notice it's what God did. Once you notice that word did there, um, it's actually not there in the Greek. It's a beautiful picture of how uh, God actually accomplished this work for, for us. Listen to this. This is how this verse actually reads. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God. When I was in my worst moment and able to do the things that God required me to do, God. That's the picture there. Paul says God showed up in his most needed moment, and he did something by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Friends, that is Christmas and Easter right there. He showed us Christ, delivered him into this world, but he also had him hung on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He didn't just atone for our sin through his great teaching, or his miracles, or what have you, but through the sacrifice of his body. 
Now, that is the how of the gospel. We've covered that already. But I want you to see the why. Why God did this so that he could provide the perfect life that we didn't have. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What, by the way, is the requirement of the Old Testament law? If you're going to somehow achieve perfection on your own, that is what the law demanded. 100% perfection, 100% of the time. But the obvious conundrum is we simply can't do it. He took on our stains so that we could be made clean. Friends, that is amazing. That is the gospel, a reassertion of what Paul was communicating all the way through the journey that we've been on so far. But now on the backside of verse 4, all the way through verse 17, which is where we're going to end our time this morning, Paul reasserts what he was communicating in chapters 6 and 7. This promise is now fulfilled in those of us, according to the end of verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now I want you to notice something. Is this a command? Do you see any command issued in verse 4? No. He's simply stating a fact. For those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Paul assumes something here, that these people have been saved, and now also they have a changed life. They're living by a different power source. And guess what word you're going to see starting here in verse 4, all the way down through verse 17, verses uh, over and over and over again that we didn't see in chapter 7. What word do you guess that's going to be? Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. Here is that new power source that God is introducing us into. Again, remember, chapter 7 was a guy standing with a lamp in his hand, saying, I so want to turn this thing on. I'm pushing all the buttons. I'm doing everything that's right. I've checked the light bulb. It's all good. But what I failed to do is plug that lamp in. Without it being plugged into the power source, that lamp is effectively useless. Paul says now, let me introduce you to the power source, the Holy Spirit. At this point in this section, that is what Paul is saying. He's saying God has put his spirit within you. Elsewhere, he uses, by the way, a combination of two different words to describe this spirit. And it's a beautiful picture of who this Holy Spirit is. In other places in Paul's writing, he uses the words literally to translate for the Holy Spirit, which means to call alongside of. If you put these together, literally the spirit is the one who comes to our side who comes alongside of us in our greatest moments of need. It's also translated helper. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, is there to help us fulfill what we could not do on our own. It's a beautiful picture of what God has provided you and me. So in verse 4, as he continues, this spirit changes us. These people, though not perfect, now walk with a supernatural enablement. Look at verse 5 as he explains now a little further. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What verse 5 is saying is that all men live out who they truly are. Why do cats cough up hairballs? Because that's who they are. They are fundamentally cats. Those outside of Christ pursue self-righteousness, rebellion to God, licentiousness in the things of the flesh, because that's who they are. Their lives are centered on themselves. But Paul says, in Christ, we yield to God. We apologize quickly when we don't. And we, because of the Spirit within us, we, com- we are compelled 
to move forward in our relationship with the Lord and obey. Again, though not perfect, the presence of sin is still very much there as we saw in chapter 7, but it should be just that in our lives. Christians who are struggling along in this act of obedience and submission to the Holy Spirit. And now verses 6 through 8, I want you to look specifically at the lost man. Paul's going to give you his view on what an unenlightened man looks like, someone who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to say they are bound by a certain condition and bound by a certain effect. Look at verse 6 with me. Let's look at the condition of a lost individual. He says here, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That idea of the mindset on the flesh is the lifestyle of a man or a woman who does not long for God because they do not belong to God. His or her delights or ambitions are focused on the things of their body. We would say maybe that their God is their belly. That is their appetite. And the result of that type of lifestyle, according to verse 6, is death. That's where it ends. Unlike, however, the Christian, whose appetite is now one with the desire to please God, a life resulting in life and peace. We have peace with God, as Paul told us earlier. That's the condition or the estate of a lost individual versus a saved individual. One is dead to God. The other is alive. One longs to do the things that God desires of them, to read the word, to learn, to be in community. But the other could could care less because that is their estate. That is by nature who they are. And in verse 7, here's the resulting effect. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Paul gives three pretty strong descriptives of the individual who does not know God. Number one, he says he is hostile. He doesn't just not like him. He doesn't like his rule over him whatsoever. Secondly, he is rebellious. He will not submit himself to the hand of God in his life. And he says ultimately he's impotent. Not only won't he, but he can't. That individual is unable to please God because he's operating in his flesh. He does not have a new nature. He does not have the Holy Spirit within him. That is the effectual lifestyle of a lost man or woman. Now, I want you to notice your first word in verse 9. What is it in your translations? Say again. But, mine says, however. Listen to this. However, it's a contrast. You, believer, are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's a different estate for those of us that know Christ. We are in the Spirit. This is what you and I have been placed into, or better, what has been placed into us. The third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not a force It's not like Star Wars, right? It's not like this yin and yang. The Holy Spirit is a person who lives inside of us, not in a bodily form, but is the very spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God, as he's described in the Old Testament, who lives within us. That is our deposit. That is our down payment. And we, as we have heard earlier, have been given all of him. According to Joel chapter 2, he has been poured out in our life. I want you to notice that Paul makes a bit of a parenthesis here at the end of verse 9. He says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Can you be a Christian, according to Paul, 
and not have the Holy Spirit? Answer, no. When you became a believer, whether that was last night in your so what time, or 15 years ago at your bedside as you prayed with your mom and your dad, God gave you a down, a down payment, a deposit. He put within you his very spirit. Paul says here, either you have him or you don't have him. You don't get more of him at a later time. He gave you all of him. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that is done, you cannot lose him because you did nothing to earn or deserve him. You are either saved or you are not saved. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that event of what happened in your life. Now in verse 10, I want you to look at the effect. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The believer is not hostile like the unbeliever. He's not rebellious or impotent. He is alive to the things of God. You're alive to God and his righteousness. The idea is when God speaks, you hear. When God calls you, you go. By the way, is this a command? No, it's a reality. It is a fact in, our, in all of our lives. When God is at work in us through his spirit, these things are true of all of us. And I want you to notice, according to verse 11, what Christ does in a believer's life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, which dwells in you. He gives life to our mortal bodies. Our bodies are dying. Friends, I want you to think about this. One person in human history, other than having been done by Jesus, was raised from the dead. Jesus himself was raised from the dead. That is the beauty of the payment that he made on the cross for us. God resurrected him. Now, through what power did the resurrection happen? Say it with me. How did that occur? According to this verse, who raised Jesus from the dead? According to verse 11, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Do you realize the, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that had the ability to bring a dead man back to life, is the same Spirit that lives within you and me? Do you think if he could raise a dead man from the grave, do you think he has the ability to help you and me battle sin? Do you think he has the ability to help us navigate this life and walk with him? Friends, that is child's play to the Holy Spirit. He is more than capable. We have a power that is so incredible, so unimaginable, because this is what he is capable of, and this is what Paul is saying. That same Holy Spirit that raised Christ lives in you and lives in me. In verse 12, he's going to apply all of this, and now and get very specific. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This is the application here. This means under obligation or being debtors to someone. When you're a debtor, when you owe someone money, do you have the option to pay or not pay? No, they're going to come after you, right? If I owe money on my house or money on my car or whatever it may be, I don't get the freedom to say, you know what? I just don't feel like paying this month, right? Instead, I think I'm going to go on a vacation or I'm going to do something else with my money. That's not the nature of the relationship. I am in debt to said individual. I have to pay. Paul says, we are not that way to the flesh. We are actually 
in debt to someone else. So in context, if we are not in debt to the flesh as believers, who are we in debt to? The answer is God. So you're saying, I have to obey God. Yes, we're in debt to him. But do you know what that means? Whenever you and I sin, how do you feel? We feel like Judas, right? Like some sorry individual who's walked away from God at that moment. We feel terrible for what we did. We instinctively want to yield to God because you're under the compulsion to do so. You're indebted to. It isn't because you took Christian lessons. It's because you, in your very nature, have been changed. Friends, as you wrestle with understanding sin and things in our lives that displease God, you're going to find there is a compulsion within you to want to come back to the Lord, to leave this presence of sin in our lives that we sometimes, not residence in anymore, but we visit. We have a desire to say, you know what, Lord, I know that didn't make you happy. I blew that, and I want to come live in your country once again, where you have already made me a permanent resident. But sometimes I wander off. I need to return. Paul says within us, there is now a compulsion to do that because of the nature of who God is. When I go home on Friday morning, my wife is going to greet me at the door. She's going to give me a big hug and I hope a big old kiss on the mouth. And the reason she must is because she is compelled to do so. When she sees me standing before her, what else could she do other than respond in that way, right? I say that obviously tongue-in-cheek. The idea is that's our relationship with God. When we see him, his majesty, what he has done through the Holy Spirit, we are compelled to move towards to him, not out of law, but out of a desire to obey because he's changing the very nature of our hearts, and that's a process. In fact, in verse 13, he goes on to say, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. This word literally means you are separated from God. You are a citizen of sin country. If that's where you live, if that's where your permanent residence is, if there's no sense of conviction, no desire to walk with God, if that is who you are as an unregenerated person, someone who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, that is what you're going to be, rebellious to God and separated from him. But he says that's not who you are. Verse 13, the end of it, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is beautiful. How does Paul feel a righteous man or a righteous woman will live? He says he will or she will, by the Spirit's power, put to death the deeds of the body. And if you and I do that, if you live by this idea, because of whose you are, you are, according to Paul, a true believer. I want you to notice what verse 13 does for us. Two specific things. In context, it's making a statement describing what a believer in Jesus looks like. This is important. And it gives us a model for how we are to deal with sin. You remember we dealt with this question in chapter 7. In our flesh, because it's still alive, it's still there, is there something in us because of sin's presence that desires to walk away from the Lord? Paul says yes. So what are we to do according to verse 13? You can't do away with the desires of the flesh, but what you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit is do away with those deeds. You can't keep your flesh from acting itself out, right, or from wanting those things. But what you can do is stop allowing the flesh to birth sin in your life, 
right? You can still, in a sense, be covetous, right, to want things that aren't yours, but what you can do is stop maybe pursuing money or those things that would come from that, acting out on those desires. Those core desires will still be there, right? You can still lust, so to speak, but you can keep yourself from the actions that would result from that. That flesh is still there. It's still present, but no longer do we have to obey it. We don't have to do the deeds of the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice this because this gives me so much encouragement. Do you notice what verb tense are in here? This is so important. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, it is so important that Paul did not say, if by the Spirit you have put to death the deeds of the flesh, meaning that's past tense. Christian, you no longer sin anymore. And if you if you have put sin to death in your life permanently, once and for all, and never sin, then you're of the Spirit. Is that what Paul says here? No. What does he say? If you are actively, daily, hourly, minutely, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, taking a thought captive the obedience of Christ, God, that's not how you want me to think in this moment. I'm not going to do that. Lord, help me. Allow the Spirit to intercede where my body is weak. Help my mind not to go down that path right now, daily. Paul says that is the evidence. Those are the things that demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, that you are indeed His. Doesn't that encourage you that God knows our battle, that He knows that we're going to continue to wrestle with those things? But He says, I've given you a power now to defeat that. And how long are you and I get going to battle our flesh? He says, until you're dead. Now, friends, I wish this was different. I wish that God said, you know what, Mike, I'm just going to remove the flesh from you completely after like five years or 10 years of wrestling with it. But Paul says, it's not until death, until Jesus Christ returns or he takes me home in death. When I get a new body and this body of sin and decay is done away with, there will be in your life, just like there is in mine, this idea of struggle. But I want you to notice the key ingredient here in verse 13 that allows you to even have a chance at victory in a way that you never had before. What is that key ingredient? Say it again. The Holy Spirit. Friends, this is revolutionary. This is life-changing. We have never had this ability before. And God is saying, I provided something for you that is essential to this process. His job is to help you to take you to a destination, to come alongside you as a believer. When you obey, he helps. But you don't worry about the dance and all the, the implications behind it. We are just to know that there is a power within us that's greater than the power that is in this world. And Paul says here, this is evidence of a believer. They will struggle with sin. Unlike the non-believer who sins and simply does not care, there's no conviction, there's no desire to move back to the Lord. Paul says the evidence that you and I are actually his is that we wrestle this thing out. And Paul now moves to a very relational idea in verse 14 as to how this works. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In verse 14, I want you to circle the word led and connect it to the word obligation in verse 12. It's the same idea. Here it's just more descriptive. A Christian is someone who's led. 
like a child being led by their parent by the hand. They don't know where to go. They would be lost without him. But that parent's hand is their assurance. It is their guidance as they walk this path of life. It's the Spirit's work in us that leads us, that convicts us, that conforms us to the image of Jesus. And we are to feel that in a sense within, that idea of God's working in our lives. And when you see this person who's being led by the Spirit, it tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that they are sons or daughters of God. They are family. What is a son, by the way, according to Paul? It's someone who's been born again, born of God, and a son or a daughter lives in the house of the Father. And in verse 15, he substantiates our rebirth. He says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons which cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says, when you were born again, you receive a new nature, that nature that we talked about last night, the very Holy Spirit. We have a new disposition. Our heart is that we have received as Christians is no longer encased with fear, the kind of fear that comes when you have to do things in order to earn God's favor or not do something because you're afraid of going to hell. Any of you, by the way, grew up in environments like that, are familiar with that, where it's this fear-based uh, environment, don't do these things, don't dance, don't have sex, don't do these things, right, because God's going to be displeased with you, and if you do them, he's, he's angry at you, so don't do those things, or do these things instead. That environment can lead to fear. It can lead to insecurity. That's not the idea. Paul says we are not in an environment of fear. Anybody who's ever come out of backgrounds like that where they feel like they're walking on eggshells with God, you never know where you stand. Paul says, that's not the heart of the Father. That's not what God saved us into. He didn't send Jesus so that you and I would live in fear. We're more than just servants. We are sons. We are daughters. We have been adopted into the family of God. And as his children, we get the privilege of calling him something. Did you see that word that Paul uses to describe his father? Abba, father. You guys know what Abba means? It's kind of a rough translation for the word daddy. When my kids were really little, you know what they called me? They called me daddy. Abba would have been cool too. Uh, They called me daddy, right? Because they were young. And they were the only three individuals on this planet that called me that, right? It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection, right? And that's the idea. Paul is trying to help us understand that's how we're to see our father, as good, as loving, as one whose arms you desire to crawl up into. Because he is safe and he's good and he will take care of us. He's saying here that we as Christians have an instinctive ability and a desire to serve God, to obey God, and to love him. And we do so because we're sons, we're daughters, we've been changed. And in verse 16, he says it's not merely a lifestyle that shows that we are sons, but the very spirit of God himself. Look at verse 16. He said the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In verse 15, it's your response to the Spirit that gives testimony of your new life. The way that you respond demonstrates who you are. But in verse 16 here, it's actually the Spirit's response to you that gives that testimony. It's the Spirit of God giving witness in your heart. This is His presence within you, convicting you, encouraging you, assuring you that your realization that He is constantly present within you. In human terms, 
Verse 15 is my girls having access to me, crawling up in my lap, calling me daddy in a way that no other child can. It is proof that they are my kids. But in verse 16, it's me agreeing with that reality and confirming back to them on a daily basis. Yes, you're my kids. I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never stop being your dad. And in verse 17, Paul's now gonna make a transition. He says in our final verse here, and if children, heirs also. What is an heir? What does an heir do or receive? What do they get? Say it again. An inheritance, right? Uh, It's what a child is entitled to. Now, when do you become an heir? When do you fully realize all that you're going to get as an heir? When do you get that inheritance? Sometime in the future. It's still yet future. But I want you to notice what in verse 15, Paul says is here. We are heirs of who? Not of stuff. We are heirs of God. Yes. And fellow heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now, why is this so odd? In a Jewish culture, it was typically just the firstborn son that got the lion's share of the inheritance, right? In context, who is God's firstborn son? Jesus. And what does Paul say we are with him? We are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. So what's true of him is also true of us. We one day will reign with Christ. We will be elevated alongside of Christ. We will forever live with him. But before we get there, in the meantime, how do you tell who is an heir? He says at the backside of verse 15, or 17, rather, what we've already read in chapter 5. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we also will be glorified with him. According to Paul, because of what lies in front of us as believers, we're going to suffer in this lifetime. There will be difficulty in front of us. Just as Jesus suffered, we will in some ways as well. And when you know what's on the other side waiting for you, this world pales in comparison to the beauty of our Father, because this is not our home. So friends, as you think about all that Paul is communicating to here, as we kind of apply this to our lives, Romans 8 has shown us once again this idea. Firstly and most importantly, we are not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we wrestle this thing out, as we wrestle with doubt, as we wrestle with insecurities, as we wrestle with depression and greed and all the other things that the flesh wants to walk us into, God says there is no condemnation. Christian, you are not condemned. You are fully known, fully forgiven, fully accepted, and fully loved by your daddy, by your father. I know that sounds odd, but that's what Paul is saying. There is this intimate relationship that we have with him, and he loves us regardless of any of those things that may be going on in our life. And secondly, as a believer, you have a new power source. You are not left holding a lamp, begging for it to work and begging for it to turn on. God says, I have given you the ability to plug that thing in to this power source that has the ability to cast out all darkness. Light will never be overcome by darkness. And because he's given you that power source, 
we have the ability as saved people to be led by our Father through the means of the Holy Spirit as he's literally like holding our hand to walk through this life. We have the ability to walk this thing out, to struggle nonetheless, but we will on go day by day, continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh because that is actually evidence that we are sons of God. Those who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we are demonstrating, again, that we are his. And lastly, friends, though it's not maybe the most encouraging thing to hear, this battle will be ongoing, and we need to prepare for that idea. We are at peace with God. Romans chapter 5 tells us we are good with him, but there's actually a war that is still going on within us. That chihuahua and that German shepherd of the Holy Spirit, they want to battle. And friends, here's the key. We've got to choose which dog we're going to feed. Because if we feed that German shepherd, he's going to grow, and he's going to get stronger, and his presence in our life will grow. But if we choose to starve that dog and feed that chihuahua, you know what's going to happen? That chihuahua is going to have small man complex, right? He's going to get bigger. He's going to get stronger. His barking is not going to cease. And if we allow him to grow in our life, the deeds of the flesh that come from that dog are going to grow as well. So we have a choice in this matter. We are saved. We are secure. We are loved. And it's our choice to say, which means am I going to walk by? The flesh that I've known my whole life, or am I going to walk by this new means, the Holy Spirit? And we talked a little bit about this yesterday, that it's going to feel a little bit like throwing left-handed. In our next and final session together, as we look at the book of Romans in this back half of chapter 8, we're going to discuss the real practical ways that you flesh this self out. How does it look like to walk by the Holy Spirit day to day? What do I do? How do I do this thing that feels so unnatural to me? But in the meantime, what we need to know are these things. We are not condemned. We have a new power source to battle sin. And that process of battling sin is going to last until either Jesus takes us home or he returns in victory. So let's prepare ourselves for that idea to go to battle with our flesh, to feed the Holy Spirit, that big German shepherd in our lives, and to continue to walk with him. Friends, let's pray and let's continue to worship. Father, we are grateful for this means of the Holy Spirit that you have given us, that your scripture says that you have sealed us, according to the book of Ephesians, that this down payment has been given in our lives never to be taken away. And Father, as we continue to approach you, as we, like your kids, crawl up in your lap for safety, for support, for leading, for guidance, would you remind us that we are secure in your love, that we are known by you, that you love us unconditionally. And as we work this thing out called walking in the Spirit, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to abide in you, to find life in you? And would you remind us in those moments when we walk away that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, remind us of these truths as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.